0: Ephesians chapter number 1, and I want to give you a sermon entitled, Life in Zombie Land." How do you like that for a title? Life in Zombieland, this should be interesting. Now, the book of Ephesians, and, and, and the reason for this sermon was the reading this week, if you follow uh, McShane's Bible reading schedule, part of the reading for this week was to read Ephesians, and I read Ephesians I read, you know, Ephesians is such a delicious book of the Bible. It's so fun, it's so, it's just, I really, I really love it. So you're supposed to read one chapter of it, and so I read one chapter, then I read two, three, four, five, and six, and the next day I read the same thing. And it's it's not that much to read, it's only, in this Bible, just a couple pages really, three or four pages, but it's just so, it's just, it, it just, it just tastes so good to my mind. To read it, these words are just so great, and uh, it's a wonderful letter written by the apostle Paul to a group of believers in the city of Ephesus. And the things that it says are so thrilling and challenging. You just you just want to savor it. And then, as I was reading this week in chapter four, there is even an answer to one of the questions that I find myself asking more and more: Why is the world so out of whack? Why is the world this way? And so from that reading comes this sermon. Now, let's make a prayer together, and then I'll uh, kind of pray and read as we, we go along, all right? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help me now as I take your word in hand. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going on in people's hearts and minds. I know what's going on in mine, and I pray that your word would be wielded by the Holy Spirit to make all the right connections in everybody's life that they need. And Lord, maybe, maybe, maybe for somebody, it'll be one of those moments where a finger from heaven comes down and touches them in a way they, that they realize that you're really out there and you are really involved in this world and they'll come to know you in a better way. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now, the book of Ephesians is just, is just so wonderful. And in the first part of the chapter, the Apostle Paul talks about something, first part of chapter number one, which is a little bit sobering to think about. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So, therefore, there had to be problems amongst the fellowship at Ephesus that he's addressing. This is no accident. There's purpose behind God's actions. And so in this letter, the first thing that we learn, this is point number one, is we learn that we who are in Christ, those who have been born again, we are part of God's unfolding plan for the ages. Listen to the reading from chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. Listen to what Paul says. "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places.'" even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through jesus christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us with which he has blessed us in the beloved in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. According to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ "...as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things." Now, what we learn there is that we are part of God's plan, a plan that was conceived by Him before the world was created. Now, sometimes in theological circles, people talk about the intra Trinitarian fellowship that preceded the creation. Now, when you hear that kind of lingo, what that actually is is mumbo jumbo, it's just preacher talk. And you can't trust preacher talk ever. <laughs> What it is, is a human attempt to understand something that we deduce that had to have taken place before the world was created. Because if God existed before creation, the implication is that the Son existed before creation. And if the Father existed before creation, and the Son existed before creation, the Holy Spirit existed before creation, and that these three, they share in one divine, eternal essence mutually dependent on one another and enjoying one another. So before the foundation of the world, if God has a purpose that He decided, because before God acts, He has a plan, He has a purpose, just like you do. Don't you sometimes, now we don't always think before we act. We all should, but we don't always do that. But before you act or think, you sit down. And you maybe plan out what you're going to do. You have a purpose. I'm going to build a house. Okay, that's our purpose. Now, there are steps that lead up to that, right? So first step is what? You have to have, where am I going to build it? <laughs> Somebody said, borrow the money. <laughs> you know, where am I going to build it? You've got to procure land, got to get permits, got to get money. You have to fear who's going to build it. Am I going to build it? Am I going to get my wife to build it? <laughs> what's, what's going to happen here? You have a plan. And, it was, and this is a deduction that we make, is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that before the world was made, that they worked out their plan for the ages, that they worked out their purpose. And sometimes in thought, theological thinking, they'll talk about the decrees of God. That God made successive decrees. And then there's always, preachers are always, preachers are such weirdos, aren't they? Preachers are so weird because they have to work out the proper succession or the proper order of the decrees. What did God decree first? What did God decree second? And What did God decree third? And then the big question is, is there any chronology or order in eternity? Is there one, two, three, or is everything just one? These are, these are the things that people think about when they stay up too late. Well, these are the things that they thought about before we had TV. <laughs> people sit around and did a lot of thinking. And what Paul is telling us here is that we who exist today, we who are in Christ today are in Christ because of the plan of God for the ages. And that we are in the midst of God's plan, His great plan of redemption. Now, my friends, praise God that in God's plan that He conceived before the world was made, that there was a plan that absolutely included the salvation of sinners. Because if God hadn't decided to save sinners before the foundation of the world, there would be no salvation of sinners. And as a sinner who's been born again and come to faith in Jesus Christ, had all my sins, past, present, and future had all those sins remitted or paid for or atoned for, I'm pretty happy that God's plan for the ages included to the salvation of sinners, especially in that personal way. Now, my friends, I believe, this is a matter of conviction for me, I believe that the universe, the earth, man, and everything in it was made so that God could glorify Himself in the saving of His loved, chosen, and elect sinners through His own blood. This is a part of God's purpose and plan for the ages. God is so invested in saving sinners that Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says that the blood shed by Christ is the very blood of God, the church which He has purchased with His own blood. God giving himself in Christ for sinners. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, to wit, authorized version, to wit, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. This is a divine act, a divine offering of himself so the sinners could be redeemed. And God has made this world as the backdrop for his great plan of redemption. Now, as we live in, in the midst of this plan, we have to keep in mind that God is unfolding his plan or unveiling his plan to us like a play, act by act. Recently, we went down to the Sheboygan Opera House and watched the high school musical, and it was a play in and, and successive acts. Now, you kind of know the, we kind of knew the, it was a Cinderella play, so you kind of know the, the bigger picture. If you ever watched a Disney cartoon, you kind of know how it goes. Now, if, you're, if you're a classical person, you probably you know, saw a real play, but, you know, anyway. So God's plan for the ages is being revealed to us play by play, page by page, act by act. God has predestinated things to happen. God has, is presenting to us this, this ongoing drama, His plan for the ages, and what we learn from this is is that we see that the world that we live in plays a role in God's redemptive work. And that our county and our families, we we all are following the rails of God's predestinating, preordinating plan for the ages. God is working out His plan. Now, now, sometimes people say, well, I don't really care for that. I don't really care for what you're saying. I understand, 100%. But I want you to think about something. The world we live in appears to be going off the rails. The world we live in appears to be getting nuttier as the day goes by. And you start to wonder, what what in the dang heck is going on? What is taking place here? What is happening? Now, if, if the world is under God's control, then you know it's going to wind up right. You're on the rails. I thought I'd break into a song about life is like a mountain railroad with an engineer that's brave. You must make the run successful from the cradle to the grave, you know, with your hand upon the throttle and your eye upon the rail. (laughs) Just, you're... We are on God's train. God's driving the train. And we're going along a prescribed path. It's not a path that we know. We don't know every crook and twist of God's path for this world. But we know that God is driving the train. God has ordered the world. So wherever we end up, it's going to be the right place. And along the way, He takes us through these things which are part of His, his plan. So we need to rest our hearts. On on his words, things like here in in, 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 uh, Ephesians, like verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We need to trust God's predestinating work. And trust that God is taking us to the right place, and that God is in control, and that while we see the world around us getting baddier and baddier by the day, that this too must be part of God's plan. This too is part of God's plan. All you got to do is read the Old Testament and see how God has worked out these things. So that's the first thing. The first thing Paul tells the people at, at Ephesus is, hey... God's got a plan, you're a part of it, and you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay because you are already seated in the heavenlies. You're already there, right? So that's the first thing Paul says. Must been an issue at Ephesus. Now, if you remember the setting of Ephesus where the church began, it might help us a little bit. If you go back to the book of Acts, you'll read about Paul going to Ephesus and preaching there. And the city of Ephesus was a city totally given up to the worship of Diana or Artemis, totally possessed by idolatry. Every kind of wickedness you can dream of, they were doing and worse at Ephesus. And in that crazy city, God is telling the Ephesian people, you are a part of God's plan. It was God that brought me to you to bring the gospel to you. That's the first thing you see. The second thing you see, in Ephesians, is that God has provided everything we need to be saved, and He provided it for us in Christ. God has provided everything we need to be saved, and He's provided it in the person of Jesus Christ. Our salvation comes completely from Him. Now, just in case you don't know what salvation is, because sometimes that's church talk, Right? And sometimes we forget that not everybody is real familiar with church, how church talk is and church vocabulary. But salvation or being saved is when a person who is a sinner condemned justly before God. They turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and call upon Him as their Lord and Savior and He saves them. The minute you put your faith in Christ, all the sins you committed from birth to that point and all the sins you you will commit from that point future, all those sins are forgiven in Christ. Every sin is paid for by Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you are delivered from the wrath of God. You're delivered from condemnation. You're delivered from judgment for sin. And it's permanent. It's It's justification. God declares... A believer, innocent before him, and they are just for all time. That's Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And the way those words are starting together, it's a, it's a perfect tense. It's something that's a status that never changes. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, I know it seems unbelievable. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, all your sins are remitted, past, present, and future. It doesn't matter what sin you commit in the future. You cannot lose this union with Christ. And that's what Paul talks about in the second half of in 1 and chapter 2. The salvation that we have comes completely from God through Christ. Now let's read verses 1 to 10, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Listen to the reading. In verse number 1, Paul talks about our status with God before the new birth or before salvation. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. This is your status. You're dead to God. And here's the evidence of this. In which you once, this deadness, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Christians who have come to faith and everybody else, are it's the same. There's no difference. You weren't saved because God looked down from heaven and said, you know what, if I save him, I'm going to get a real good deal. I really need that person. That's not how it works. Everybody has this equal footing with God of being dead in sin. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is where salvation comes from. It comes from God. It has to come from God because we can't fix it ourselves. Because of what it says in verse number one, we are dead. It must come from God because we are by nature in a status with God that we cannot change. Now, I've been to the funeral home many times. And, and, and if there's a body present there, that, there's, the body can't change anything about itself. I've seen people come in there and they open the coffin And some of us say, you know, I wish you could move move this or do this or move his hand a little bit. And I've seen the the funeral directors make little adjustments to the body. That body is dead; it can't do anything for itself. And this is the picture. This is the picture of you. Without Christ, you are dead. Now you're not. Now sometimes uh, reform people will say, "What can dead men do?" And the answer is what? Okay, class. What can a dead person do? They can't do anything. So they just can't, they can't, they're just irresponsive, they're just dead. And sometimes they say, so you can't do anything to procure your own salvation. They talk about it in those, in those terms. And that's true in one sense. But the real point here is that you're at a negative status with God, you're dead. Now, I hate to do this because I preached a sermon about this recently, but I, I have to do it. Have you ever seen. A mob movie about the mob, mafia. So the only one, the only good one is The Godfather, right? And you know, Michael Corleone he has to give Fredo the kiss of death because Fredo has betrayed the family. Or you'll hear somebody like this. Maybe if you watch Shark Tank on TV, you guys ever seen Shark Tank, the show about the investment guys? And what does Mister Wonderful say when somebody pushes him too far, rejects his offer? What does he say? You're dead to me. Have you ever said to somebody, somebody, you're dead to me? I say it. I haven't said it in a long time, and I'm thinking about bringing it back. (laughs) You're dead to me. And that means that your status is you're just dead. You You have no value with me. You have no standing. And my friends, you are dead to God. You have no standing with God. You're in a negative status with God. And what can you do about that? You can't do anything about it. It takes God to intervene. It takes God to do this work. That's why it says in in verse 1 and verse 4, by grace you've been quickened. You've been made alive, made to live by Him. He comes and does it. Because our natural standing with God is negative. In verses 2 and 3, He says that our nature, if we just watch the way we live, the the way we behave, that by nature we are rotten in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, and were by nature children of wrath. This is what our nature brings upon us. We are at a negative status with God, and it cannot be remedied by ourselves. And then verses 4 and 7, the apostle says that, but, something has happened to change our status. Something has happened. God, because of His love and mercy, responds to us. Even though we're dead to Him, even though we have... Even though we have lived lives of rejecting God, even though we have lived lives devoted to sin, God, because of His love and mercy, responds to us anyway. Have you ever forfeited something? My dad, his pastor, when he was growing up, was a man named Tom Pullen. And Tom Pullen, he had had a lot of things he loved and... One of them was Charles Spurgeon, which is always good. And the second thing he loved was baseball. He loved baseball. Now, Pastor Paul, when he died, he was an old codger when he died. He was 60-something. <laughs> no, he was, he was a real old codger. And uh, and I had many, I, I, I knew, I, he was my dad's pastor and my grandma's pastor, and so I knew him. I was around him a lot. And uh, he would always tell this story about himself when he was a kid. That when he was 13 years old, he was playing Little League Baseball. And he was kind of the MVP of the league. And he won a trip to go to the, watch the World Series. It was either in the late 40s or early 50s in the Yankee dominating era, you know. And he'd won this trip. And... Uh, he was at bat and an umpire called a ball a strike. You guys know how that works, balls and strikes. The umpire made a bad call. And Pastor Pull instead I turned around and told him he was a blind SOB. 13 years old. And Pastor Pollins he was he was he was kind of you could you could you, that did not surprise you cuz he was kind of warm-blooded anyway. But that umpire ejected him from the game, and then the league rescinded the award. They took away his trip to go watch the World Series, which I think was a Yankee game. He was a big Yankee fan. He lost it. His transgression caused him to lose something wonderful. I knew Brother Pullen way up into his 80s. And he still talked about it after over seventy years later. I mean, it just really hurt him. And he would he would he he told he told me that story many times. Maybe he was telling sending me a message because <laughs> you know how preachers speak in proverbs sometimes. But he forfeited that status with God. Now, my friends, it's the same thing with you and I. We have forfeited our standing with God by our sinfulness. But unlike the Little League Commission of Miami, Florida, from back in the old days, God, in mercy and love, even though we are rotten, He reaches out to us and says, I love you, and I'm going to have mercy on you. And I'm going to send down to you my grace. And I'm going to open your eyes to what you really are. I'm going to give you everlasting salvation. You see, God, because of his great love, has it moved him to do something. To do something that he had began doing before the world was made. To reach down and save us. Now, my, my friends, The scripture says here plainly that salvation does not come to us by our works. It comes to us by mercy and grace through faith. Look at those words in verses 8 and 9. And if, if you don't memorize anything else in the Bible, memorize these words. For by grace, for by unmerited favor, Undeserved kindness, you have been saved through faith. Charles Spurgeon says that grace is the river upon which the ship of faith travels. God's grace poured down onto you. And in that stream of grace from heaven, God sends down to you on that faith. Because grace is not just a status. Grace is not just a dispensation or a period of time. The grace of God is a power. It's a power that when it strikes you, it affects you deeply. It's the new birth. This gracious unveiling of God's love. And this... Verse 8 is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. God has done this. It's His gracious bestowal of love. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. My friends, I talk to people all the time who say, Yes, I'm going to go to heaven. And I say, What gives you that kind of confidence? And they'll say, Well, I'm a good person, I go to church. I was knocking doors in Oklahoma one time, and Lay told me, I said, how do you know you're going to heaven? She said, my husband's a Baptist deacon. <laughs> that, makes, that makes marrying a deacon a hot commodity, man. It just dist- but I have knocked on doors and had somebody... <laughs> actually this, 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 was, this was a mind-blowing experience. I was working at Sears selling washers and dryers. This is before. This is around the time Mitchell was born. And me and this guy, he's a Lutheran. At that time, I thought all Lutherans were unconverted. Because I didn't know any better, really. We're, stand, we're standing there at work at Sears. There's nobody coming in. This is back in the day when you, we had to wear suits and ties to sell washers and dryers at Sears. Can you remember those days? Crazy times. We're standing there leaning on a washer. washer. He's standing right there. And I said... His name was Craig, I think. Craig. He had one leg longer than the other. He had a, you know, one of those funny-looking shoes. We're standing there talking, and he said, so what are, you, what are you doing here in Hot Springs? I said, well, I came here to be assistant pastor at a church. He said, oh, he said, he said I, I go to church. And I said, where do you go? He said, I go to the, uh, uh, I think it was Prince of Peace Lutheran Church or something like that. And I said, and immediately I thought, well, he ain't going to heaven when he dies. Because only Baptists are going to heaven. <laughs> that, was, that was my basic viewpoint. And so I thought, well, you know, workplace evangelism. Here here we go. And so I looked over at him and I said, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? And he said, because of the grace of God bestowed upon me through Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Boom! Quote John Jasper, ain't nobody kept out of heaven saying stuff like that. I mean, that is the way of salvation. The grace of God bestowed. If you're going to get something tattooed on on your brain, if you want something to be burned in your memory, burn these words, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's not of works that any man should boast. It's through faith in Christ. Now, I know for some of you that seems... It just seems too good to be true. Because we're all conditioned that if it, is, if it sounds too good to be true, then what? It is. But God, this is the miracle of the gospel. If the gospel ever makes sense to the world around us, we've lost the gospel or they've all been saved. Through faith, through the transfer of your trust from anything other than Jesus to Jesus, will save your rotten soul will save you. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Put it anywhere else and you'll go to hell. Put it in Christ and you'll go to heaven. In Christ. By grace, through faith. It's a gift. Not something we earn. We are His workmanship. So let me ask you this question. Are you believing your way to heaven? Are you trying to work your way to heaven? Because I've been around Baptist people long enough. And I've been in churches long enough to know that just because you go to a Baptist church that preaches the the free gospel of Christ's grace or anything like that doesn't mean everybody understands you. We're not not working our way to heaven. Because some people are really they really think I gotta do my part. Jesus did his part and I gotta do my part. Are you working your way to heaven or believing your way to heaven? If you're believing your way to heaven, you're gonna make it. If you're working your way to heaven, You're not going to make it. Faith in Christ saves. Now, the third thing I want to say to you is this. Well, I'm saved, but this world is so insane. Why are all the people around me so crazy? Because the Lord saves us, but he doesn't take us to heaven right away. Have you ever wondered why that is? Lord, how come I can't just put my faith in you and be zapped up to heaven? Wouldn't that be great? See? Some of you guys are wondering if that'd be great or not, because summer's coming. <laughs> and, and, and to quote somebody in his congregation, God doesn't live in Michigan, but he vacations here. <laughs> so, <laughs> the delicious days are on the way, Right? The world around me is so, why are people around me so crazy? Now, these are illustrations of various kinds of craziness, because what do you mean by crazy? And this, this is going to be a lot of fun just to talk about. This week, I saw a book that calls Donald Trump the Suffering Messiah of America. That's what I saw. Why do we live in a world where people are venerating him in this kind of way? I saw this week the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, that she sent a letter to a man named Dylan Mulvaney who is celebrating his 365th day of living authentically as a woman. If you want to go look at this dude on TikTok, you can. He He is a young man who presents as a woman. And he's preparing to go through his first menstrual cycle. It's impossible. But this young man was invited by President Biden to go to the White House and have an audience with the president, the most powerful man in the free world. And, our, and the vice president sends him a letter and says, Hey, brother, well done. What is going on with this world? Why is it that people in our community are dominated by sex, enslaved by drugs? Their alcohol is ruining their lives. Why is it that this beautiful little place on the shores of Lake Huron is filled with filth, both moral filth and actual filth? Why is it that all over the United States we have all these these shootings. You see, here's what's going to happen with these shootings. It's, here's what it has done to me, is that after a while, there are so many of these shootings that you get so sick of, you're like, yeah, just take away all the guns, because you're just frustrated. This, is, this was an issue with Islamic terrorism, was after a while, we say we have freedom of religion in America, but when all these jihadists are doing all these dastardly deeds, ultimately, you start to think in your mind, yes, let's outlaw that one particular religion. You get so frustrated with why are things the way they are? Why is Vladimir Putin committing such horrible crimes against the people of the Ukraine? Why is this ongoing? I find myself saying, why, 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 over and over again. Why must it be thus all the day long? Why does the world have to be in such a tailspin? Why are people doing the things that they're doing? And the answer is in Ephesians 4, 18 and 19. I read this week and thought, I'd had a conversation with a person the day before, It was a personal conversation with somebody I know fairly well. And I walked out of there thinking, what? Why are people, why are people like this? But the and then I was reading Ephesians 18 and 19. Talking about Gentiles, talking about the unconverted. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There it is. The people around us in the world we live in their minds are dark. They're in the dark. They are dark-minded. They are lost in the darkness of spiritual death. So, like zombies, they prowl the world looking for something to satisfy them, looking for something to feed upon. Now we, we live in an age where television and movies they made all kinds of these films about, about zombie stuff and the zombie apocalypse. You have like 410 seasons of The Walking Dead you can watch online. And you see the zombies just as these hungry hordes roaming across the world. And I'll just say this, I've watched The Walking Dead, I watched the first eight seasons, and after a while I thought, you know, hey, if they, kill all the zomb- if they haven't killed all the zombies by now, why, why bother? <laughs> And, and, and everywhere people go, no matter what kind of life they build on those shows, they got their little city, they got the wall around it, they got their little zombie traps, they got their two threes and five sixes and their sniper rifles and every kind of, of thing you can imagine to, to take out the zombies, the zombies just keep coming. The zombies mess up everything, you know? We live in a world filled with people who their minds are dark. Why are they doing the things they're doing? They are darkened in their understanding. They don't understand. Have you ever tried to get somebody to understand something? Something that's so painfully clear to you? I only went to to Christian school a couple times in my life, and the rest of the time I was homeschooled. But when I did go to Christian school, I remember sitting at a table with a lady named Lenora Pullen. She was Pastor Pullen's uh, daughter-in-law. And she was explaining to me algebra. And she would explain it to me, and she'd say, see? And I would go, no. And so she would do it again. she'd say, see? And I would say, no. And I could tell she was getting warm. So even when I did see, I still said no. (laughs) I was winding her up. Zing, 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 zing. And finally, go back to your desk. (laughs) I didn't understand. They don't understand what's going on. That's why I really think this is a true statement. That's why it looks like so many times that Christians, people who have the Holy Spirit, they're the only people who can see what's going on in the world. We're the only ones who have the right perspective. We're the only ones who can say this is what's absolutely true. It's Christians. Because our understanding is different we have received the mind of Christ. We have the light. We have the light. Amen. They are ignorant. They don't know any better. Now, that should affect the way we feel about these people, right? Now, Lenora Pullen, what she should have done was crack me across the head because I was yanking her chain after a while, right? She should have been angry with me and frustrated with me because I, I, you know, I was being myself. <laughs> the only way to not hate these people who are roaming the world like zombies The only way to not hate and be angry and loathe these people is to remember that they don't know any better. They are enslaved by sin. They are alienated from the life of God because they're ignorant and their heart is becoming hard and they become callous. And they give themselves more and more deeply to these sinful, destructive things, but they don't know any better. They don't know. And so what you and I have to do is understand that what they're doing doesn't come from a place of of rebellion. It comes from this fallenness. And therefore, we should look upon them like Jesus did and have compassion on them. And be sympathetic to their plight. Now, sometimes you will, sometimes there's a we feel a tension between sympathizing or empathizing with someone and compromise. These people need our understanding. Here's what they need: they need to know that we love them, in spite of their ways. Not easy to do, is it? And they need the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel must be shared with people. They've got to know the gospel. Now the gospel is a funny thing. You can can give the gospel so much and have no response to it and you, after a while you're like, this doesn't work. But then all of a sudden, out of the blue, the gospel does work. Like when I was praying earlier, that maybe the Lord would reach down from heaven. and be a finger from heaven moment for some of you, that they realize God's out there, and He's reaching down, and He's going to touch people. That they would know the gospel has power. Now those of you who are here and you've been born again, I've talked to some of you, you've told me your testimony. You said, this is what I was before I became a Christian, and here's what I am now. And what happened was, the gospel came into your heart and life, and illuminated you to things you didn't know about, sin, Christ, the love of God. So this world we live in, these people are the way they are because they have darkened minds. So don't hate them. Don't burn them in effigy. Reason with them. Argue with them about things that have to be argued about. But don't let them think that you don't care for them as a person. And don't and don't get to thinking that they don't deserve the gospel. Because that is something that's a temptation you're going to have sometimes. <laughs> Somebody told me one time, I said, "Man, I've thought about killing people hundreds of times." And they're like, <gasps> "I said, "Well, you just haven't lived long enough." I got three daughters. I got two sons, I got one wife. And there's been some times when people have done things to them when my first thought has been, I do own an unregistered gun (laughs) that nobody could trace back to me. And I know I could hit them from a long ways off. I mean, you say... That's the kind of things that we think about. You can get so angry with people, you say they don't deserve to hear. They don't deserve to know. You have to work against that. I know that to be true because look what Paul says in verse 17. 4.17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. He's telling Christians, don't walk this way. Verse 20, he says verse 18 and 19, this is how they are. That's not the way you learn Christ, assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as a truth that is in Jesus. You must put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new life, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you live this way. Christians can still go back to the old way. The temptation is there. We have these two natures, one that wants to please God and one that doesn't want to please God, and they're at odds with each other. And the apostle says, don't go back to the old way. Don't become like those people. Don't live like that." as we look around at people and you think about them. Now, I look at little kids all over town. I see all these little kids that come to Faith Kids on Wednesday nights. And then when once a month, me and uh, Sam Agee, we go to the uh, intermediate school. We pick up a busload of 30 to 40 kids who are third, fourth, and fifth grade. And uh, it's called Release Time Bible. And I'm going to say this to you, Friends. The local school system here is very, very cooperative with anything we want to do as far as Christian outreach. And that's something we've got to value, appreciate and take advantage of all we can. Because they cooperate with us in a big way. It's so, it's so nice, because they let us they, we, we use their bus to bring kids down here to hear the gospel. What a blessing. We need to seize these opportunities while we can because you never know when that's going to stop. Seize it while we can. Now, I look at these little kids and (laughs) sometimes they look like little cherubs, like little angels because they look so clean. They look so pure. And I wonder what kind of adult are they going to be? What are they going to grow up to be? Sometimes I see adults and I see them, they're, they're enslaved by alcohol or they're drug addicts. They're dominated by sex and greed. And I wonder, what happened to them? They followed their natures. But well, Christians, we have a different nature. We should be following that new nature that's given to us by Christ. And these persons who are enslaved by the darkness, the only way they can be set free is through the gospel. That's why we as a church need to seize every opportunity to preach the gospel to this city. We've got vacation Bible school coming up, Easter Sundays coming up, live nativity in the winter. We have a packet pew day in October or September. The hope of Sheboygan is not jobs and housing, although that's all anybody talks about, isn't it? Jobs and housing, the hope of Sheboygan is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we have to be careful, that's what the warning is there. Fourthly, we who know Christ, we are from the zombie world. Those old appetites, they come creeping back. Living the old vile life, that temptation is there. We must not follow the old ways, we must follow Christ. I'm going to say this lastly because it's about ten minutes to one. not one. I want to say this to you carefully. I wonder how many of you are sliding the wrong way. Getting back to putting on the old self. You're not renewing your mind like you should. Instead of putting on the new man, you're still playing dress up with the old man. The way we should be living is described in the last part of chapter 4. So here's the conclusion. The world is messed up. And churches can get so yucky sometimes. There can be so many things happening inside a church that we just think, well, it's hopeless. And we just quit. Or at least feel like quitting sometimes. My friends, as I read Ephesians this week, I was reminded that not to quit. Because sometimes things can get to you. Don't quit. Press on. Now, earlier in the year, I was thinking about preaching through Revelation or teaching through it in a class, but I decided not to do it because I think it it just caused too much trouble probably. But as you read Revelation, if you read it regularly, it has a really cool thing in it. And when when you get to the back of the book, guess who wins? Everybody who's on Jesus' side. That's who wins. There's an old song by the cathedrals that goes like, I read the back of the book and we win. <laughs> no more living in darkness, will be living at home with him. We win. Christianity is going to win out in the end. Sometimes it looks like it's not, but it's going to win in the end. So my friends, let's press on together. Let's press on together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And, you know, it's... and Father, I pray that I haven't been too selfish with this sermon because it really was a blessing to me, and to my heart. And reoriented my mind about life and the world we live in. And I pray, Father, that it would do the same for my friends and brothers and sisters here. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here who is not a Christian, that they'll call out to you. Help them to be delivered from that deception that says salvation is attained through works. Help them to rest in the gloriousness of justification by faith alone. And they'll call upon Christ and be saved. Whatever barrier might be standing between them, Lord, if they're worried about what people may say or think, that you would tear down those those walls, Father. And let the glorious light of the gospel shine in their heart and mind in a brilliant way. I pray these things in Jesus' precious and glorious name. Amen.